0: Hey, I'm Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm in Jamestown, North Dakota. I came up here to speak at a couple of churches this weekend. Looking forward to this evening and tomorrow. I just happened to be standing in front of the world's largest buffalo. Why? Because I needed a prop for my episode. Strangely, just last week, I was in Birmingham, Alabama, and I tried to film this episode in front of the world's largest iron statue, which is a statue of Vulcan looking out over... Birmingham but the park was closed for a private event so I didn't get to film my episode so I came up here instead and now I'm standing in front of this giant buffalo wishing I was somewhere else because it's kind of cold up here right now there's snow on the ground it's a little breezy it's kind of shivery I'm I'm glad I get to speak at some churches and encourage some people in the word and in their understanding of science I'm looking forward to that my mind though is that way 3,000 306 miles, almost exactly due south of North Dakota are the Galapagos Islands. And now for these people who are challenged with uh, miles, as 5,320 kilometers. The island of Daphne Major in the Galapagos. That's what I'm thinking about. A brand new paper has come out on the Darwin's finches on that island. This has been a paper 40 years in the making and they literally sequence the genomes for thousand of those little teeny birds on that island the paper is NBody body at al 2023 community wide sequencing reveals 30 years of darwin's finch evolution in science magazine now i have so much to say about this and there's so many aspects of this that are scientifically interesting but they also inform us about the evolution creation debate and help us to build our model of biblical speciation how we start with a few created kinds and get species today, what species are, how they're maintained over time, are they real or not, are they ephemeral, do they just interbreed like crazy so species really don't exist, all those sorts of questions that creationists ask, we can answer some more of those questions because of this study. And we're talking about Darwin's finches. Now, as a historical anecdote, they're named Darwin's finches, even though Darwin completely muffed it up. He collected a bunch of birds in these islands and didn't bother to write down what island he collected them from, so when he sent those birds back to England for the bird taxonomist to study, they're like, um, where'd these come from? These are different species. And Darwin didn't even, one, know they're different species. Two, didn't even realize they were finches. Three, didn't properly record his findings. So they used the collections of other people, like the Christian and later anti-Darwinist Captain Fitzroy of the HMS Beagle. His finch collection had proper labels. So they used other people's Finches to sort out Darwin's finches to call them Darwin's finches. Yeah, all right. That's just for the history buffs. These finches are these birds, these nondescript little hopping birds. You wouldn't think much of them unless you study them intensely. And on this little island of Daphne Major, and literally it's a tiny little speck in the ocean, there are much larger islands in the Galapagos chain. In fact, when you're landing in a plane on the main island, you can see Daphne Major, this little teeny dot in the ocean. And the birds there have been intensively studied, and we've learned a lot, a lot of really cool, really interesting things about them. But the species of ground finches, not the tree finches, not the vampire finch, I think there's 15 or 18 species of finches on these islands. On Daphne Major, there are tree finches and there are ground finches. We're only talking about the ground finches in genus Geospiza. So we have Geospiza fulginosa, the small ground finch. We have Geospiza fortis, the medium ground finch. We have Geospiza magnirostris, the large ground finch. We have Geospiza scandens, the cactus finch. Those are all the finches on the island, except for one other brand new species that formed in a single year, and we never would have known it had the scientists not been there to watch. What happened was, A strange bird appeared on this island in 1981. He looked like an Española cactus finch, which is Geospiza conorostris, but a little bit off, and it turns out he was a hybrid. But he came from an island two islands away, so he would have flown a long way across another large island to get this little tiny place, and somehow he found a medium ground finch, as Geospiza fortis, female, to mate with, and they raised a clutch of eggs. And one of those female birds went off to mate with the birds from another species. But most of the birds growing up in that nest mated with themselves. She says, birds are weird. Female birds will be listening to the song sung by their father. And when they fly away to find the mate, they will tend to mate with a bird that sang a song just like their father sang. That's what helps partition the species within birds. But the male birds growing up in the nest will listen to the song of the father, and they'll sing a very similar song. And so these birds that are growing up, they're looking for mates that sang the same song, and they ended up intermating with each other. Now, there's never been a lot of them, but since 1981 until today, they've always been there. They look different. They act different. They sing a different song. They breed true to type. They mate within themselves. They fall into all the classic definitions of a species, and they appeared in... A single year because of hybridization. So how long does species take the form, Mr. Darwin? Well, you didn't notice this one, but not very long at all, under some conditions. In other conditions, though, species change very slowly. Now, not over millions of years, over thousands of years, and they do, treat a breed, they do tend to breed true to type, which is what we see in Darwin's finches, which is why we have the tree fringes and the ground finches and they're different from one another they behave different they look different they sing different songs they don't mate with each other but the ground finches do tend to hybridize a lot a whole lot in fact of the four thousand finch genomes that they sequenced about five over 555 is over 500 of them that's like one out of eight or more than one out of eight were hybrids Whoa, that's a lot of hybridization. with that level of hybridization, how do the species maintain any sort of species distinction? That's the question for today. And it turns out to be a very, very interesting answer. And it really only works easily on this island. This is one of the coolest, most interesting natural laboratories that anyone's ever found because there are only a couple of environmental variables. There's only a few species. There's no feral cats on the island. If you have feral cats on an island, most of the bird deaths are due to predation. And that changes the whole picture, but there's no predators on the island at all. There's only a few species of plants. And so the ground finches that eat seeds, that's their main food stuff. um, There's only a couple of ways that they can optimize their strategies for obtaining those seeds. And if they don't optimize it, they're going to die of starvation. So you have a couple of species, a couple of food crops, and then you have a very strong environmental drive. And that is the El Nino, La Nina cycles. And during the La Nina years, during the drought years, in fact, it was 1980, 81 up into 1982, there was a two and a half year long drought. And 90% of the birds on these islands, on this island, died. 90%. But here's the cool thing. The research team had the family tree of the birds all the way back into the 1970s. They were looking at who was interbreeding with who. Every single year, they caught every single new bird, tagged it, and observed it to see who was mating with whom. And, in the 1980s, they started collecting blood samples from the birds. And so now in 2023, from 1981, I think it was, until 2012, they are taking blood samples. That's the samples that they were used to to sequence 4,000 genomes. And so now we have the family tree we have a massive environmental trend and we have the DNA, and they're able to show quite conclusively that natural selection is a real thing that really worked in these birds under these conditions that doesn't mean we can generalize natural selection to the entire world to all conditions i think natural selection is a very weak driver of change most of the change that we see is driven by created diversity the things that got engineered into the original genomes of the creation of the things he created, and then through genetic recombination, through mutation and sp- selected places, the genes that were designed to change, uh, things like that. And uh, retrotransposons, jumping around and turning things on and turning things off. We have speciation. More on that in a second. Well, let's talk about a work of Rosemary and Peter Grant. These are the people who are driving this research. These are delightful people. I had the opportunity to meet them. What a blessing it was. We were filming Darwin, the Voyage that the World. That's CMI was filming that. I was a new CMI scientist. I only had my PhD for a couple of years. And we were flying to the Galapagos Islands from Guayaquil, Ecuador, out into the islands. And the plane was held up for some reason. And there's two seats empty next to me on the plane. And the last two people that got on the plane were this elderly couple dressed in in ragged clothing warm clothing and I said man that looks like two university professors going out onto a field station and they sat next to me And after a minute I got the courage and I said excuse me are you Rosemary Grant she goes why yes I am I said wow I'm a huge fan and that was true then and it's true today even though we have radically different views on origins I am a huge fan of her and her husband's work, their dedication to the craft, and their their, their amazing, what do you say? Um, their stick-to-itiveness and their meticulous documentation of data. That's what it takes to be a good field ecologist. In fact, one of the reasons why I got out of ecology is because I don't really think that way. Yeah, my degree is theoretically in coral reef ecology, and that was most of my classwork, but when I found genetics, I took off and I never looked back. And so my doctoral dissertation is a couple of chapters on ecology that I don't really care for and a couple of chapters on genetics, which I love. I've been a geneticist ever since. One of the biggest frustrations I had in ecology was a lot of my colleagues are they're working on these big projects and they're trying to explain this system like, let's say, um, seagrasses in a bay or corals on a coral reef or, you know, something like that. And they're, they are all these different environmental variables and they're trying to put them to computer models. And one of my friends in his presentation of his doctoral work said something like, my model has an R squared or correlation coefficient of 0.25. And he was very proud of that. And I said, wait a minute, your model can only explain 25% of the data. How is that even a model? And so ecology is trying to take these mathematical models and put them onto God's creative diversity. And his creative brilliance and the intricate, complex things that we see in the natural world. And it is not a trivial thing, which is why this work on Daphne Major is so important. Because there is a clear environmental signal and only a few things to deal with. And they were able to watch species form, species change, and they were able to document natural selection. Very, very important. Oh, by the way, right after we took off in the plane, Rosemary said, hey, my new friend, Rob. Hey, Rob. Look out the window. Can you see the Guayaquil River? I said, yeah, I see the river. She said, "Do you see any floating mats of vegetation? I said, yeah, I see some some, some branches and leaves and stuff. She goes, sometimes those, those vegetation mats get to over a mile across. And they'll float out to sea, distributing who knows where. And they'll bring small animals and insects, sometimes even flowering bushes with them. I said to myself, why thank you, the evolutionists, also concur with the creationist model of post-flood biogeography, where we've been talking about floating log mats for decades. And well, there's a model of it right there. Maybe even explaining how things got out to the Guapagos. They floated on big log mats, which might also explain how the giant tortoises got out there and how they got from one island to the other after they got there. Tortoises are another story for another day. We're talking about birds and these amazing little birds. It turns out, that there are only a handful of genes that explain length of the beak, the width of the beak, thickness of the beak, the size of the beak, and the size of the bird. And some of them interact. But it turns out also that the genes that control most of this are in a cassette. There's four genes together, a super gene they call it, that has very little evidence of recombination inside it. In fact, this group of genes looks the same between the tree finches and the ground finches. In other words, it was there before they branched off into their respective genuses and before the species formed from the genus. Oh, very interesting. So here we have standing variation, prefigured genetic diversity. Now, how far back does that go? I don't know. I don't know if that's in the original created kind or if it was something that arose after the fact, the recombination or mutation. I'm not sure because I don't have the genetics of all thousand species in a finch. Oh, by the way, finches are in a group of about a thousand species, the finch sparrow monobaramin, or the super cluster of species. Now, as soon as we start talking about that, the evolutionist is going to raise a red flag and say, oh, you creationists, you believe in hyper-evolution. How can you get a thousand species of birds from two birds on Noah's Ark? No. Oh, wait a minute. First of all, my friend Nathaniel Jensen has shown quite clearly that within the created kinds, specifically the ones that had to be on the ark, that's the air-breathing land vertebrates, basically, most created kinds only have a handful of species, and it is trivial to explain them in 4,500 years. Easy peasy. Some, though, have many species, like the Finch sparrow, uh, the Finch sparrow group, barramen, Of about a thousand species. And yet, they're not two birds on Noah's Ark. No, Noah took seven pairs of each of the birds. And seven pairs of birds can have a massive number of genetic variants. And so it's kind of trivial to explain the species. But plus, a lot of species can hybridize. Surprising species can hybridize. Things that we didn't expect to be able to hybridize can and do in the wild. And they produce. Regular old birds that can go and mate with other birds after the fact. Happens often, it's just having a hard time documenting it because the evolutionists have slowed us down as far as our understanding of hybridization goes. But, something else important though. In general, more similar species will tend to hybridize. More dissimilar species tend not to hybridize. And when they do, they tend to produce sterile offspring or they produce offspring that can't find mates. There's a lot of um, hybrid vigor where two species will mate and the offspring are more vigorous than the parent species, but that tends to be within similar species, not dissimilar species with the same kind. So creationists, we have to explain how, starting from a creationist kind, a created kind, how over time the species diversify and then can't reproduce with each other again. See, we tend to say, oh, if two species can interbreed, they're in the same created kind. Yeah, but what about the ones that can't interbreed? What about like dragonfly species that when they try to interbreed, the sex parts lock together and the male and female both die? Uh, I think that's a post-creation change. Something that the, 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 the copulatory organs in the dragonflies change such that the parts are no longer complementary. I bet they're the same created kind. I bet that in the past, they might've been able to reproduce together, but now they cannot. It's physically impossible for them to reproduce. There's all sorts of other examples in the natural world. And um, here we have birds that don't ever, as far as anyone's ever recorded, reproduce. That's the tree finches and the ground finches. And amongst the ground finches, they do reproduce with themselves a lot, one out of eight, but, the species remain the same. How can you have lots of hybridization and species constancy? Because there are only a few environmental variables, there's only a few puzzles to be solved. And the animal that can solve that puzzle the best will live, and the one that can't live. So we have just a few seeds on the island from a, different, a few species, now the cactus finch They eat cactus seeds. The other birds can't. The cactus seeds are big and they're hard to crunch. The cactus finch can do that. They tended to remain the most constant throughout the study, all this 40 years of study. The large ground finch, uh, Geospiza magnorostris, when they arrived on the island in the 80s, a single couple came and appeared on the island. The other birds flew in later. They've maintained their own little population. They don't interbreed with the other birds, they're different. They're independent. But the other other birds, that's the small ground finch, Fulginosa, the medium ground finch, Fortis, and the cactus finch, Scandins, they do interbreed, but not equally. In fact, they in all the years of doing this, they never saw a cactus finch interbreed with a small ground finch, but they too find genes the small ground finch in the cactus finch population. How? Well, A cactus finch tends to sometimes intermate with the medium ground finch, and the medium ground finch tends to sometimes intermate with the small ground finch. I think what it is is the males will tend to breed with a smaller female. So a small female from Fulginosa will mate with a a larger male from the medium ground finch, Fortis, but then the birds that grow up will be listening to the the song of their father, the medium ground finch, singing that song. And so the hybrids will tend to blend into the medium ground finch population. But sometimes a cactus finch male will mate with, I don't know if they're larger though, will mate with a medium ground finch female. And then the, the hybrid birds that grow up will be listening to the cactus finch song and they'll enter the cactus finch population. So what we have is gene flow from the small ground finch to the medium ground fish, from the medium ground fish to the cactus finch. That's really interesting. Okay, let's talk about the genetics. I'm gonna try not to be too complicated. I know I've already thrown a lot of big scientific words, naming all these species, but the genetics, let's let's keep it at a low level just to understand this, because it's really interesting. They go and they sequence 4,000 of these bird genomes from decades of collection, so multiple generations of birds. And they're notice first of all, that most of the genome is the same amongst all the species. There's almost no variation there. They're very inbred little things, but there's six particular places in the genome, they're called loci or locations, six particular places that rose above the statistical noise. And they're strongly associated with not only the family tree of the birds. Remember, they've been watching these birds for decades, see who intermarry or who interbred with whom, but the genetics is also associated with the size and shape of the beak and the size of the body. Six specific locations. This is also a product of natural selection, at least the species are product of natural selection. In this case, I'm not generalizing this into the entire universe, no. But for these birds specifically, the um, I like to define fitness as the organism with the highest number of offspring in future generations is the most fit. That's not true here, but as far as the birds are concerned, the number of offspring each pair had really had nothing to do with uh, the, sh- the shape or size of the beak or the size of the body. The number of offspring was independent of those factors, but those factors were definitely part of who lived and died. In fact, during the tremendous drought years, what they showed was that that medium ground finch, the ones with the larger beaks, died. Because they are in com- competition with the large ground finch. And those bigger birds outmuscled the other birds that were trying to get at the food source the bigger birds can dominate. The little birds, though, they did better. And so the medium ground finch, the small ground finches that did better. The medium ground finch, the ones with the smaller beaks, the genes they got from the small ground finch genome, they actually fared better than the medium ground finch with the larger beaks. So it was a shift there. And they saw that the next generation, when they went back the next year, the ones with the smaller beaks were the ones that were there. Oh, that's a clear case of natural selection. It's not epigenetics. It's not like the birds chose to do something. It's not like the genome of the birds changed in response to some environmental variable. No, it was life and death. And the ones that lived are the ones who had the smaller beaks. Wow. Wow. Very, very, very interesting. Again, it doesn't mean it's true for everything. That does not explain the origin of species. But in this case, at least it can definitely explain the maintenance of these species. Now, really interestingly, over the course of this study, they were able to show that maybe like in the early 1980s, the species were more distinct than they are now. Because after that massive drought in the eighties, the generalist birds died. The specialist birds lived. But then over time with intermating between the species and sharing of genes between the species, they became more generalist. Not totally. You can still tell the species apart, but they became more generalist. What's going to happen the next time there's a massive drought? Well, I predict that the generalist birds are going to die and the specialist birds are going to live. So how do we, or why do we have all these different species is because of the environmental drive. That's how we explain the origin of species. Species over time, they get pigeonholed. If you let me use another bird analogy, they get pigeonholed into a narrower and narrower niche over time. And sometimes that niche means that they change their behavior, their shape, so they don't ever intermate with another thing of their same created kind. This genetic pigeonholing is not really good for species over the long, long, long time, because it means that they lose genetic diversity, they lose the ability to readapt to different environmental conditions, but because the birds can interbreed with other species, each species does maintain more genetic diversity than they otherwise would. So interbreeding is good for species. Interbreeding helps them to readapt to new conditions, and it helps them to rebound from a tremendous population bottleneck, which is what we saw here. What do you think? Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Or is that just too nerdy for you? I don't know. I think it's really cool. Really, really, really cool. One more thing. This is a a unique case for another reason. Most polygenic traits, that's most traits that are affected by more than one gene, don't have a strong allele that drives it. In other words, um, consider human height. Human height has been studied for many, 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 many years. Lots of geneticists have looked at all the genetic factors that affect human height. There are a lot of things that affect human height, genetically and environmentally, but genetically, human height is not highly heritable. It kind of is because, you know, big people have big children usually, but it's not nearly as heritable as you might think. The beak size of these birds is highly heritable. The body size of the birds is highly heritable. And these six loci explain 45% of the size and shape of the beak alone. In fact, one of them explains 25% of it. So you have a couple of letters in the genome that are driving most of the differences between the birds. And so we have a very clear signal. We have a very simple experimental laboratory on this Island. And therefore in this case, natural selection can be applied. Does that explain the origin of species? No way. No way at all. If you want to know more. Look at my article on creation.com, which I wrote on this very subject. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, or you can go read the the original paper. There'll be a link in the show notes for that also. Christian, be encouraged that the, most all of the evidence the evolutionist uses is actually evidence for our model. Thank you, much, Mr. Evolutionist, for inventing these things, but you can go play with something else. Natural selection, change over time. Genetic drift, hybridization, those are all parts of the creationist model and have been there for a long time. In fact, I just read an article from Carl Whelan 25 years ago where he said that speciation is an intrinsic part of the biblical model of creation. So we got speciation. It's on our side. It's the origin of life that the evolutionist isn't going to be able to handle. So I'm happy about that too. They can't explain where things came from. Once you have things living, once God has overcome all the biochemical, statistical, physiological probability hurdles, you have living things. And once you have living things, they can be modified. But that's all I'm going to say. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I really appreciate all your support. I just eclipsed, we're about to eclipse 4,000. Uh, followers on YouTube. I know that's nothing compared to most other channels, but I am a extremely small niche marketplace. And the fact that I found 4,000 people, just click the the like and the follow button. I really appreciate. So you want to help me? Click follow, click like, and click share. If you really want to help, you might want to consider uh, financial support. There'll be some links in the show notes below. God bless you all.